0: Let's sing Jesus loves them.
1: Jim called me yesterday, and he and Janine, I believe, are feeling under the weather, so he's not able to be here today. I know the cold and flu, it's that time of year, and uh, it's going around, so keep him in your prayers, and hopefully he'll be able to be here for Wednesday. So I didn't have much time when he called yesterday, so uh, (laughs) I just threw something together based off of what we've been studying in men's group. And I figure I don't uh, apologize for ever camping in Romans. Uh, That's where we've been, and I'm happy to double down there quite frequently. So we're going to be in uh, Romans 8, which is the particular passage I don't mind doubling down on. Uh, And it's appropriate that uh, we sang, Jesus loves me, but the Bible tells me so. Because this chapter is going to tell us how. It's going to lay that out for us. And it's my hope that when we study through this passage, we'll come away with a renewed sense of just how secure we are in Christ and what He's truly done for us and all the ramifications of that to get an appreciation for it, because I certainly love going over these passages. All right, so let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, we're thankful to be here once again to look into Your Word. Your word is true, it's trustworthy, and you're faithful because you're holy and you must be faithful. So we thank you for this opportunity. We ask that you would reveal your truth to us through your spirit and that uh, you alone would remain. Help me to strip away my opinions and thoughts and interpretations, whatever it may be, but only seal the truth of your word to the hearts of those that hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the problem with studying Romans beginning at chapter 8 is the fact that it's very hard to start in at a particular point because Paul just lays on theological point after theological point and it makes it difficult to jump in at any particular point. And as we can see here in Romans 8, the very first word is therefore. So we kind of need to know what the therefore is therefore, in order to understand uh, what he's going to be discussing here in Chapter Eight. If you'll remember the book of Romans is a, is about justification by faith. How is an individual made righteous before a holy god and if you remember in chapter One he talks about how the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodly men and he goes from there and concludes that among those who don't recognize God there's none righteous and even among those uh, which he addresses in chapter 2 who are considering themselves self-righteous because they believe they are doing they're upholding the law but Paul points out their hypocrisy and he concludes that there is none righteous no not one none that pursues God And so that leaves the question, how is an individual made righteous? And he lays that out in the next uh, few chapters, talking about justification by faith apart from works of the law. And so that's kind of the main theme. And I want to hit on something that he talks about in chapter 6, because I think that really opens the door and leads us into chapter 8. In Romans 6, verses 5 through 7, Paul says... For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we no longer are slaves to sin, for He who has died is free from sin. That is a dramatic proclamation. And it's really in light of that that he can go on into chapter 8 talking about the implications of that. Well, what does that mean? And he he continues in chapter 6 where he talks about uh, as Christ died, he died once for all. And therefore, he says in verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. And then he transitions into chapter 7. So... In chapter 6, he's talking about our old self being crucified to, with Christ and the body of sin is done away with. But then he goes to chapter 7 where he talks about what's the we still have the problem of the flesh. And that's all the chapter 7 lays out, that conflict between the old man and the new man. Starting at chapter uh, 7, verse 15, he kind of lays out this war that he feels uh, between these two natures within himself. And he says... In verse 15, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. So he sees and feels this conflict inside himself. The conflict of his old fleshly nature and the new nature in Christ, and that kind of drives him to the end of chapter seven, where he, you kind of feel like he throws up his hands and he says, "Oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death?" And he answered that in the uh, uh, the next sentence, where he says, "Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord." So he's saying there is deliverance. Deliverance has happened, and that's through. Jesus Christ. So it's coming off of that knowledge in the in the previous chapters that we can get into chapter eight and really understand what he's addressing. So that's why you can say, therefore, knowing that the the deliverance is through Christ Jesus our Lord, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. He died once for all. He answered the question of sin. And notice it says, now, at this present time, currently, since Christ paid the debt, since the sacrifice, He has wiped it away, and you stand uncondemned, even though you rightly deserve that condemnation. That's right. There's no condemnation, no rightful judgment, no penalty for those. And Notice he, he says, for those who are in Christ. So he's talking about a particular group. He's not talking universally. He's talking about a particular group that is identified with Christ. And so he continues from there in verse 2. He says, For the law of the Spirit of Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. When he says law there, he's using the term law as in force of influence the way we would kind of refer to law of nature so the law or the force of influence of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death that law the law of the spirit of life is far greater than the law of sin and death and that's a blessed truth to know that that we're no longer under condemnation because the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has superseded that of sin and death. For what the law, this is uh, verse 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, we know the law is good and righteous and holy, but we know the law can't help you. It can only stand to condemn you. And that's what he's saying. What the law could not do, it can't help you, weak as it was through the flesh. But wait a minute, God did. God accomplished so the answer, the question of how can you satisfy the law has been answered. And this is how he did it. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You were the rightful object of that condemnation, but you are no longer under condemnation. And now he's flipped the script and condemned the sin that was just condemning you previously. That's a level of sovereignty that is hard to wrap your head around, that you are not under condemnation, but the sin that stands to condemn you, that is under condemnation. What a wonderful truth. And notice who it is that accomplishes here. It's not the flesh. It's not not your sin. It's not the law. It's not you. It's God did. Through Christ, He accomplished all His will. And He continues in verse 4, "...so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." The just requirement of the law was fulfilled. The law is good and holy, and so are its requirements, but they were answered. The question is no longer out there lingering, how shall we satisfy the law?" God did through Christ, He fulfilled the demand of the law. So we ought to stop thinking that we can somehow satisfy a demand that's already been met. He accomplished it. And the law is just and it is fulfilled. And He continues in verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh... And notice there's two groups here, two separate groups. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Two separate groups. They're not crossing over. They're, they have a different mindset. And when he's talking about mind, he's talking about perspective or attitude or, or, or your worldview and understanding. It's uh, that which is inner, which influences the outside... Those who are according to the flesh, they can think nothing but the flesh. Those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, they stand in contrast of each other. And now he's going to give us a little more insight into that fleshly mindset. When he says in verse 6, For the mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. Completely opposite perspectives. The mind of the flesh, death. The Spirit, life and peace, two opposing worldviews that stand in contrast to each other and can only be accomplished if the Spirit of Christ is in you. But he continues giving us a little more insight into this mind of flesh when he says, because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Notice that it's not just that the mind of the flesh is unaware of God or some type of neutral state it's actually working against the other way in that it is hostile towards God for it does not subject itself to the law of God why? for it's not even able to do so and those who are in the flesh cannot please God that's why Jesus says why do you not hear my voice even because you are not my sheep? You have to be a sheep to attune yourself to the things of God. Hostile to God. And that's really what we see. I frequently look at the Freedom From Religion Foundation's website. For some reason or the other, you know how you look at various <laughs> websites. But I, I just I go there because I find it fascinating that when I, they advertise themselves as freedom from religion. But if you go to their website and you read all the links of stories, it's always stories about Christianity or prayer in school or some other thing. It's not really freedom from religion, it's freedom from Christianity. That's the one that they're hostile towards, that they're working against. So we really see that played out in in the world. I've never heard of
0: that. Is that a movement that's
1: really going on? Yeah, it's Dan Barker's. You've, you might have heard of him before, but uh, it's his website, i I don't even recommend getting involved. To going to church, <laughs> but yeah. And you think they don't go for religions like, oh, say, Islam. Right, yeah, yeah. No one really spends a lot of time trying to prove Islam is 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 wrong or Santa Claus or whatever else you believe doesn't exist. But it's that it's that attitude and mindset of God doesn't exist and I hate him, right. and that's what what we <laughs> see right here. That's that's exactly what Paul is saying. Yeah. And I give Jim credit for that. I stole it from him. So I'm not trying to claim it as my own. Well, he stole it from someone else. Yeah, probably. (laughs) All right, so he continues off of that explanation of what the flesh is, how it's hostile to God, how it can't please God, and transitions into that and pivots and says in in verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him, the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you transforms you from your old self of flesh into a new creation so that you don't identify with that anymore. That's not who you are. It's been nailed to the cross. It's been taken away. And that's why Paul can say in... uh, 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. That's the transformational power of the Spirit. And note here another very interesting thing about verse 9 here is that he starts the verse by saying, If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, and then he contrasts that. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong. In it. Notice how he just interchanged spirit of God with spirit of Christ. What does that tell us about Christ? God. That his spirit and he is God. Yes. Those who belong to Christ have his spirit. There's no condition or state of belonging to Christ without his spirit taking up residence in you in an individual. There's no way to. Um, approach Christ outside of that. And so he continues in verse 10, But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet, standing in contrast to that, despite that, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Despite the flesh being dead as a result of sin, yet your spirit, through the power of his spirit, is alive because of his righteousness. And he uses the example of the resurrection here in the latter half of this verse 11. And he says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through the spirit that dwells in you. What a marvelous example to look to the resurrection, look Look to Christ and to see we have that same guarantee that Christ had in being raised from the dead. That same Spirit is within us, and as such is a guarantee of our future resurrection and glorification as well. That's amazing. And I really hope we can get a sense of appreciation just how secure we are and how wonderful His promises to us are because they are magnificent. That's why He says in... 1 Corinthians, Paul also tells us that by the first Adam there came life as a, as a being, but by the second Adam, our last Adam, that's Christ, there came the life-giving Spirit. That's who Christ is, the life-giving Spirit. So then, verse 12, So then, brethren, we are under, under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you will die, you must die, And a lot of people read that and come away thinking uh, either subconsciously or other that they, the individual, by the power of their own will, through their own might, can somehow overcome their own flesh by their own impulses. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Remember, he just said the flesh cannot please God. So you can't do that. You can't. Put yourself in a position where you are not obligating the flesh. But he continues in verse 13 in explaining to us how that's accomplished. He says, But if by the Spirit you put to death, or mortify, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Notice the distinction. By the Spirit, being led by the Spirit... It's not your flesh overcoming the flesh. It's his spirit that overcomes, that mortifies, that puts to death the deeds of the body. And that's right in line with uh, what Paul tells us in Ephesians uh, 2, where he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which he preordained that we should walk into them. That's pretty marvelous there. He gets the credit. He gets all the credit. And so he continues in verse 15 saying, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Fear was our former state, but in great contrast to that, now with the spirit of Christ, we can approach him the same way a young child can approach His Father and run to Him, knowing He will be received. He can cry out, Abba, Papa, Father, and not have any fear of being rejected. Isn't that sweet? Just the same way that Casey ran up here when when, uh, Steve called her name. Complete confidence. And we too can have access to our Father because of what Christ has done for us. Don't have to worry about living in fear. He's accomplished it. So now he's going to give us a little more about what the Spirit does for us and and kind of mark these as we go through them here in the next few verses. The Spirit, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit here, the Spirit himself testifies, that's to make known, to bear witness uh, both to the world and even to ourselves when we doubt. That Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God making known, bearing witness who we are, who we are as our identity in Christ, revealing that, and not only that, but if children, heirs also, if you're a child, you're part of the inheritance, you have a, have a birthright, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I don't know what all Christ stands to gain. I would venture a whole lot, but you are considered A fellow heir with Christ. I don't think we can wrap our heads fully around what that means. But it is a wonderful truth. Now, I wish Paul would have just left it there and kind of skipped on from there. But he qualifies it in verse 17. Fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Glorification is always tied to suffering, and Christ typified that. He humbled himself, he was the suffering servant, and because he suffered to such a greater degree, his name will be held above all other names. He will be glorified above all, because he suffered above all. Peter tells us the same thing he says we ought not to be surprised when the fiery trial when the suffering comes to us we ought to expect it it's part of the glorification process this uh wednesday as we began our study in job one of the things that i came away with from that first chapter was job's reaction to his wife coming to him after he had lost everything suffering more than any of us will ever suffer and saying to him, just curse God and die. And what was Job's reaction? He said, shall we indeed accept good from God. And not accept adversity. He gives both. And he has purpose for both. That's the key. And that's, that's where the world doesn't get it. Because the world says suffering shouldn't happen. There's no reason for suffering. You shouldn't, there should be no suffering in the world. And when they tell individuals that, and subsequently suffering inevitably happens to an individual, that individual becomes frustrated and confused. Why is this happening to me? It's not supposed to happen. Right, exactly. So they have no good answer for suffering, but yet the Bible teaches us that we are to expect it. It's going to come. It was interesting when I was on this portion here. Doing my preparation work yesterday, I was I was just thinking of the concept of expect suffering, and I was wondering, I was like, I'm going to type that into Google, and I want to see, you know, because that's just two two words that you don't wouldn't necessarily have to associate with Christianity, although we know the Bible very much teaches that. But I was thinking, you know, if I type that into Google, I would expect there's probably some secular websites or philosophical views that uh, that A Google search would return if I just type in expect suffering, you know, like there's a mindset out there. I typed it in, every single link was a passage to a Bible verse or some Christian blog or something like that. There was nothing that it returned back to give you any answer for expected suffering. Perhaps there was on many pages down on Google, I, I don't know. But I just thought that just kind of reiterated the whole idea of what the Bible teaches and that man has no answer for suffering. But God does, and it leads to glorification. So Paul continues in verse 18. He says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth to be compared to the glory that is revealed in us. I'm going to read you what I wrote for for my my little bullet point on, on how to respond to that. My little bullet point says, resist the desire to make comparison. Paul says it's not worth it. So one of the things that I've understood about preaching so far is that um, the desire to, when you get to a verse, to and, and knowing that your audience has heard that verse many times, and then to try to explain it or give some twist on it or to elaborate on it or interpret it in a way that there's something new for that individual that we can walk away walk away feeling like they learned something and that's a great danger but Paul here is saying don't, the two aren't worth to even compare and my first reaction was "Well, i got to figure out some way to kind of exemplify or show the, how great the glory will be and then how low our suffering is but he's saying don't do that so I'm not going to <laughs> so verse 19 This is another verse that I don't quite understand or can give you a good answer, but I think it's, I'm really looking forward to being able to look at it on the other side uh, because I think we'll understand it a little better when he says, For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Remember he just talked about us. We are the sons of God. We stand to inherit. But the anxious longing of creation is waiting for eagerly for the revealing, our revealing, our glorification. I don't know how creation is expecting that. We know it's under the curse. We know it feels the full weight of the curse that God put it under. But in some way, the the seas, the oceans, the 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 trees, and all of creation is expecting its future glorified self united with us in some way. And I know there are some people that will interpret this as the creation meaning. We're that creation, and we are anticipating our own new glorified bodies. And that's what he's saying here. But he actually, in verse 22, is going to say the whole creation, and then is going to list how we also do this. So it, it means more than just, uh, just us. It, it really is the whole creation. And in verse 20 he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, not of its own will. It was placed under that curse by God in the garden, But by that of him who subjected it, that's God subjecting it to its curse, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. And here it is, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Again, it's making a connection with a future glorification, united creation with the saints of God. God has a purpose in the curse that he, uh, he, he leveled on humanity as well as creation, and it's to be able to do away with it one day in order that it will be completely glorified. His sovereign ways are above our ways in, in being able to do that. For we know, this is 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. It feels the full weight and effect of the curse and not only this but also we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit we have that spirit even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons the redemption of our bodies anyone want to testify to feeling some groaning <laughs> some some expect some waiting uh, eagerly yeah that's what we feel as believers with that spirit we Long for our regenerated, the redemption of our bodies. Looking forward to that. And him tying to the creation to uh, the birth pains, as he does here, the suffering, the the pains of childbirth, makes me think of uh, Matthew 24 where he's answering the disciples' question about when he's going to return, what are the signs of your coming? And he talks about famines and earthquakes, and those are just the birth pains until his return. So it's a kind of a consistent language with the rest of Scripture, that recognition that the creation does have this, this groaning within itself. It does feel these birth pains that are going to give birth to something, a new heavens and a new earth. This redemption of our body, this uh, adoption of sons that we're eagerly waiting for, it's in that hope, as he's going to say here in verse 24, that's the hope in which we were saved to. For in that hope we were saved. Not merely a salvation of just an idea or something that sounds good. No, it's a salvation to an expected and promised reality of a future glorified body. So just as sure as we know that we've been saved, we know that we've been saved to a particular future restoration and re-glorification of a of a new body. And that's what we that's what we call the blessed hope. That's what we are to hope for. And he says, But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? You have it there in front of you. You're not hoping for it, you already have it. But we know hope here is in a, a realized, actual expectation. It's not a could happen, might happen. No, it's a it's a promised reality and something that we are just waiting for it to come about because we know it's been promised and God keeps all of his promises. So we wait for it eagerly, but if we hope for what we do not see, we persevere, We we wait eagerly for it with perseverance. In the same way, he says... In verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit also, okay, in the same way, in what way? What's he talking about there? And I think he's talking, he's referencing back up to uh, verse 16 where he said the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. So he's, he's talking about the Spirit here and he's continued addressing another function of the Spirit. In the same way the Spirit testifies with our spirit to reveal who we are. In verse twenty-six, here in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. So it testifies with us, revealing who who we are. It helps us in our weakness, and here's specifically how it helps us: for we don't do not know how to pray as we should. Have you ever had a prayer that you, after you prayed it, you're like, that wasn't very good. I kind of rushed that one. I kind of got through that one. And man, I forgot to mention this. And uh, I didn't mention that. And I I had had this big plate of food in front of me. And I kind of wanted to get to that. And I was really probably thinking about that more than I was thinking about the prayer. (laughs) Yeah, we've been there. But what Paul is saying, that's always true. Our prayers are never good enough. And he's saying that the Spirit intercedes for us because of that weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself, the very Spirit of God, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Have you ever heard someone pray and it's like, man, that was really eloquent prayer. I wish I could have prayed that the way they said that. Well, here he's saying that the Spirit prays to God with words that can't even be articulated. They can't even be they can't even be said. They can't be comprehended in a language. And he says that they're groanings. The word there that he uses for groanings, stenagmas, uh, is the Greek word, and it's the same word that's used in used by Luke in Acts chapter seven when he says uh, of of Israel in its uh, bondage in Egypt, where he says. I have certainly, this is God speaking, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and I've heard their groanings and I've come down to rescue them. That's the same groanings that he, same word that he uses here to talk about the spirit interceding with groanings for our behalf. God hears the groanings of his people. So how does this intercession get through to God? He's going to explain here in the the next verse. Verse 27. And he who searches the heart, that's God, we know God searches the hearts of men, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, the mind, the mindset, the inner perspective that determines outward behavior. He knows what that mind is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God searches the heart, the heart of his saints finds the intercession of his own spirit and is satisfied. And all of this is determined by him in the first place. That's a wonderful degree of sovereignty. And I hope it's not lost on you just how weak we are and how at every point of that weakness God has an answer. And that answer is within himself, within his spirit, within Christ to satisfy God the Father. He who searches hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And now 28, 29, some of our most cherished verses. I I don't even know how you pick a favorite verse in this whole passage because it's just so rich and wonderful. And he says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. We often refer to that verse, as we rightly should, just as a in our day-to-day basis knowing that when certain things, whatever it may be, may come to pass, that God designed that and has purpose in it. He's specifically, in this case, in its context, applying to what he just said about the Spirit interceding for us. That's an example right here of God working all things according to his purpose. And he does so because of his love for us. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, and this is the what we call the golden chain of redemption because we can just see all of these interlinked to where we there's no way to really separate God's sovereignty and somehow interject man's ability anywhere. They're all of God. And just know how often he says he, referring to God. For we know, uh, for those whom he foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. In verse 30, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Yes, sir. I'm going to read it back and just put God in where it says He... For those whom God foreknew, God also predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son, so that He, Christ, would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom God predestined, God also called, and these whom God called, God also justified, and these whom God justified, God also glorified. If you're getting the sense that God is intimately involved in every detail you're getting the right sense because he is in control of it all from our foreknowledge, from knowing us beforehand before the foundation of the world to predetermining us all the way to our future glorification the whole way he's involved in designing it specifically because he's sovereign and because he does all of his will and with the acknowledgement that it's all God comes the acknowledgement that we have to see, well, it's not a man. So we have to recognize kind of both sides there. And that's why Paul kind of reacts with in verse 13, what are we going to say to these things? What, how can you respond to that? What can you, how do you react other than, well, the way Paul reacts here with what he says for if God is for us, who can be against us? Yeah. <laughs> If God foreknew, if God predestined, if God called, if God justified, if God glorified, what other conclusion can you draw, can you come to, other than if God is for us, who can be against us? There's no separation. We're united with our God. And none can pluck them from His hand. And now He's going to give us a little bit a little bit of an example here as just a, to explain to us how God really cares for us, how God is for us. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? How is God for us? Well, there's an extreme degree that proves just how much he's for it. He didn't spare his own son but gave Him over for us all, and if He's going to do that, how will He he not freely give us all things? That's a good question, Paul. Mm -hmm. If He's a God of that degree who will not spare His own Son for you, then that ought to be a wonderful demonstration of just how great His love is for you. Like we were singing, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. That's it. That's it. Mm Mm-hmm. What greater love, no greater love than this is a man that he lay down his life for his friend. And that's the demonstration that Paul's talking about here. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Remember he just said there's no condemnation. So who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who can make a claim claim against that which God has made righteous? Isn't that what God told Peter? Do not call something unclean that I said is clean. So who's going to condemn? There's no condemnation. That's what he already said. So who can condemn? Who's going to interfere and say, you're under this condemnation? It's been taken away with. Not only that, but Christ Jesus is he who died. But above that is raised, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. So more intercession. We have the Spirit interceding for us in our weakness, in our prayers that aren't good enough. And we have God the Son sitting at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us as well. It's a double layer of intercession. What a wonderful picture. Mm -hmm. He says in Hebrews 7, wherefore, He is able to save us to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He ever lives to make intercession for you. He's a, he's a God who intercedes for his own. He will not leave you to your own flesh, your own sin, to your own condemnation which you deserve. He intercedes and he has satisfied the requirement of the law if the accuser is standing there trying to accuse you about all the things that he could rightly accuse you about he's standing there interfering and saying interceding and saying no my son my son my son the blood it's not of our works it's all of him who has already accomplished the work and so he says in verse 35 with that in mind Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? With that in mind, with God the Son interceding for us, with His Spirit interceding for us, with the fact that He gave His own Son for us, with that in mind, who's going to separate you from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress? So anything from extreme tribulation and persecution to minor distresses, none of that. Or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. And remember he said all of those things are what lead to our glorification. That suffering leads to our glorification, and it can't sever us from the love of Christ. Notice the bookends to the chapter. It starts with no condemnation, and then gives all the implications of that in our lives And all the implications of that through the Spirit working in us. And then it leads to no separation, no condemnation to no separation in Christ. Everything the believer needs is fully secure, fully accomplished. And then in verse 36, he quotes uh, Psalm 44. And he says, for your sake, for the sake of Christ, we are being put to death all the day long. We are considered as sheep for the slaughter." just as he was. He said, if he suffers, we too should expect to suffer as he suffered. But he doesn't leave it there. In verse 37, he says, but no, King James says, but nay, in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. He, this Christ, caused us to all, caused all the suffering and all the pain and all the distress because he loved us and don't think that uh, he won't get you through that he has promised he will get you through and not only get you through get you through overwhelmingly i really love paul the way paul uses his language and He's going to say it right here in in verse 38. For I am convinced. So I love his confidence and his boldness in in giving us all these truths. He's sure about it. There's no doubt in Paul's mind. He knows this is true. This is what we can place full confidence and faith in. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. You're a created thing, so don't think you can mess it up on your own, because you can't. Because he says, no other created thing, including you, you can't separate yourself from the love of God. Or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Yeah, I'd say so. This chapter tells us exactly that. Dearly beloved, this is a wonderful truth. I really hope you get some sense from this chapter of just how secure you are in Christ. He holds you secure in the palm of His hand. He bottles your tears. He knows you're coming. He knows you're going. And when He's tried you, you will come forth as gold. Praise His name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You're a thrice holy God. And we look into this chapter and it makes our heart leap with joy to read the things that you have done for us, all that you have accomplished for us, despite our weakness. We just give you the praise and glory for it all, Father. We're so thankful for your Son. We're so thankful for your grace, your mercy on undeserving sinners. You came and sought us and bought us with a great price. And you have secured us all the way through and we long for the for our glorified bodies when we can be with you in a new creation, glorified and being joint heirs with Christ. We don't know what all that means, but we know it is wonderful and we long for it. We ask that you would be praised throughout this week. We ask that you would be with our pastor. We ask that you would allow us to embody this truth. Let us live it as we go forth into a world, a world that is very dark we just saw yesterday as we see once again your your truth your word testifies that uh, those who are your people will be hated and indeed they were yesterday when someone with hate in their heart went in into a synagogue and killed people just because they were Jews Lord your word is truth we know you will protect us we know you will bring us through these things overwhelmingly and we praise you for it and as we go and throughout this new week, we just pray that we may be that light in a dark world and that if anyone asks for the hope that is within us, we would be quick to give them your truth and to share your gospel and the good news about our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.